Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 26, Can You Hear Me Now? I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host for the very first episode in 2018. Happy New Year. So on this podcast, this is where we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, flight controllers, all the coolest people. We bring them right here on the show to tell you all the cool stuff about what you want to know about what's going on here at NASA. So today, we're talking about space communications and communication networks with Bill Foster. He's a ground controller in Mission Control Houston, and we had a great discussion about how space communication works, what it will look like in the future, and why it's so important to make missions successful. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Mr. Bill Foster. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Touch on this later if you want to, but mm-hmm. one thing that I always wondered about, you know, the Apollo 13, you know, the movie, you see them entering the blackout, and then there's this big tension because they're not talking after they're supposed to be out of the blackout. This so is after re-entry, right? Yep, yeah. during re-entry. And right. Everybody's worried, and yeah. a minute goes by, and, you know, the blackout is pretty predictable. Uh-huh. You know when you're going to lose contact, you know when you should get it, so there's no contact. Right. Two minutes later or so, they make contact. Yeah, So. but that's a tense two minutes. So I went over, <laughs> I was at the... Uh, Space Center Houston the other night when they premiered the Mission Control film. That's right. Which included that aspect of it. And afterwards, uh, Kraft and and, uh, Kranz and Lonnie and company were all in front taking questions. Somebody asked that. Why was the blackout longer than expected? Mm -hmm. And Kraft's answer was, we were so happy to hear them, we didn't really care. (laughs) But then somebody finally answered the question. Yeah. Um, for a re-entry over water, there was no ground station nearby, and they used a, what's called an area, A-R-I-A, aircraft. Okay. And what they said was uh, probably the, you know, the areas were always somewhat unreliable in acquiring contact. Yeah, oh. They just may have been pointing, the, looking the wrong way, or they may have had an uh, equipment issue on board, but... You know, just... they came out of the blackout right when they should have, but it just took a couple of minutes for the aircraft to lock up on them. Oh, wow. So that was interesting. Yeah. Well, how about that? Did, are yeah, we recording? recording? Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> we got it. Awesome. Well, that's great. Okay, so for those, uh, yeah, we are, uh, I have Bill Foster here with me. He is a ground controller in uh, Mission Control, and he did, he's ground control, at, at the ground control console in the Mission Control Center in uh, Houston for the International Space Station. I got to ask, I'm going to start off, how's Major Tom? We're still looking for him. Oh, okay. uh, we had a big setback early last year. Uh, we think we may have lost all hope of finding him when David Bowie passed away. Yeah. Oh, that's an oldie, but I had... I mean, how often can you do that, right? How I, I bring that you... up frequently when I'm talking to people, and, and that's one of the first things. We're still looking for Major Tom. Yeah. It's not quite as good as it used to be <laughs> i don't know i think it's pretty good i was dying to say that for for this podcast yes. um but uh so today we're going to be talking about space communication how that works you know when you think about mission control houston you know the center of talking with people in space and other centers really how does that work you know well that's that, that's really the main question and the thing i really want to answer so 
Um, first of all, if you had to describe a ground controller in one or two sentences, what does a ground controller do? Teachers to toilets. <laughs> Three simple words. Yeah, teachers that, to toilets. Okay. Ground control is responsible for making sure our communications with the space station and any other human spacecraft is maintained. That's the TDRS part of it, tracking and data relay satellite. That's mm -hmm. the geosynchronous communication satellites we use to, to talk to spacecraft today. Yeah. And the toilets reference is just we also are responsible for anything to do with the Mission Control Center facility itself. Oh, I, I see. I, I have see. grabbed a mop and <laughs> headed into the ladies' room one time many years oh, really? ago. Yeah, so. Wow. Okay. So that's I like that. So your control of the satellites, the teacher satellites, and we'll talk about those later. But those those are the satellites that are way out in space, right? Twenty three thousand three hundred miles up. That's it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All the way out there, down yes. to the toilets that are right next to you in Mission Control. Yes. So wow. We had, we had a coincidentally had a power hit that affected pretty much all of JSC today. Yeah, we just had it here too. Right. Yeah. So it, it, that was a big thing in the control center this morning. You know, oh, fortunately, yeah. our our backup pa battery systems and our uh, diesel generators out back all kicked in and there was virtually no disruption to operations oh, in fantastic. the control center. So the ISS mission, they lost air conditioning in their room for about half an hour, mm -hmm. you know, and that wasn't enough time for it to heat up appreciably. But uh, yeah. beyond that, there were no notable impacts. Some of the simulations, like the one that I was on in the ISS simulation, they were affected because the simulator building does not have the backup power. So, yeah, that took about an hour, hour and a half hit to the uh, simulations, but the MCC stayed up. All right, all part of your day-to-day -day jobs, right, is yes. maintaining the power. So you do the, uh, are you in charge of the backup power too? For well, we have to be aware of it. Uh, the Center Operations Directorate here at JSC mm -hmm. provides that power to us. They, they maintain and, and operate all of the uh, systems, the diesel generators, the, the large banks of batteries that uh, are always online. Mm -hmm. But if we have a, a power issue like we did today, then the GC is the first person that the flight director goes to to find out what's happening. And we have to make sure that our backroom support personnel are working with the center ops personnel to understand what happened and to take whatever steps are necessary to ensure it's no impact or minimal impact operations. Nice. Okay. Well, okay, so another, you know, the big thing that we really want to talk about today is, is your responsibility as ground controller is the communication networks that gets us, you know, you in mission control and, and everyone there, especially Capcom, talking with the folks in space. That's really the thing. So how is that set up? How do you go from a headset down in mission control to, you know, whatever the, I forget what the device is called, but where the astronauts talk into? Yeah, it, well, it's, it's a... It's a complicated system, but, but as you said... <laughs> it's a loaded question, I guess. <laughs> everyone in the control center has a headset on. You know, okay, yeah. our, our biggest tool is communications, mm -hmm. whether it's looking at data coming down to us, being able to send commands up, talking to the crew, or talking to each other. So we have our voice system that we call device, uh, digital voice interface communications equipment. Of course, Say that it's a bunch of times. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Is, is it, is it you, you pronounce it device or is it device? You just do device. I do device, device. but some people yeah. say device. device. Okay, but it's just D V I C E. Oh okay, so device. I, I the e. so yeah, there stutter it is. into it. Device. Okay, yeah. cool. So device is a digital voice communication system. So when you put on your headset and you plug it into the console, the jack set that connects it to device mm -hmm. 
and then you log into your device, that's establishing a connection into a computer in another part of the building. Oh. And once you pull up a given voice conference, or we call them loops, to mm-hmm. talk on, when you talk, the device system turns that into to, uh, bits, ones and zeros, mm-hmm. sends it over a fiber optic cable down to the computer system in the bottom, uh, sends it back out to anybody else that's listening on that loop, mm-hmm. uh, turns it back into audio. Uh, when Capcom talks on it on the, the space-to-ground loops, mm-hmm. it goes down to device, gets turned into audio, gets sent over to what we call air-to-ground voice equipment, or AGVE. Hmm. That equipment takes it and modulates it, adds it to the command link that we have going up to the space station. So it's it produces a combined 32-kilobit link uh-huh. that goes up to the station that has two voice channels, and I'm sorry, 72-kilobit link. Okay. has two 32-kilobit voice channels and a 6-kilobit command channel in it. And on board the station, the voice is pulled out, turned back into audio that the crew can hear. When they respond, the reverse process happens. It gets digitized, sent down on the link, sent over to AGVE, turned back into a voice signal, goes into the device where it's digitized again, uh-huh. goes out on the fiber optic cables back up to the Capcom or anybody else that's listening to the space to ground and turn back into audible voice that you can hear. Oh, wow. So whether you're talking to the crew or I'm talking to someone at White Sands, New Mexico, that's the ground station for our TDRA satellites or anywhere else in the country or talking to our counterparts in Japan or Germany, our, our Marshall Space Flight Center, that, that same process is happening, converting it into digital signals, sending mm-hmm. it through land-based communications lines to other control centers where their voice system converts it back into something that's audible for the controllers on that end of the loop. Wow. Okay, so I'm imagining when it gets through the fiber optic cable to the part where it actually sends it to space, right? So you, yes. get, you get to that. Is, that. is that a dish? I'm imagining a dish. Well, it, at a certain point, it goes through a couple of dishes. Oh, okay. So, so from the MCC, it goes out on, on just commercial T1 lines, basically, just communication lines. Mm-hmm. It goes to White Sands, New Mexico. It goes through a lot of processing equipment there. Oh. And then it goes into this large dish that's communicating with the TDRA satellite. Ah. So there, there's a, a composite K-band signal, and K-band is a fairly large bandwidth signal that we send up to the, the satellite. Now, the, the TDRA's uplink to the TDRA satellite is much larger because it combines not just ISS for mission control, but potentially other spacecraft users. Hmm. So you got to share that, those satellites. Yes, so that yeah. one dish going up to the satellite is going to a TDRA satellite that t- has two single access dishes, and each of those dishes can be pointing at a different spacecraft. And it also has an array of what they call multi-access dishes that could be going to up to six other additional satellites. So that uplink from the ground could be supporting up to six or seven, maybe even eight different spacecraft. Wow. Um, <laughs> From the TDRA spacecraft, we always use for, for ISS or any human spacecraft, we use a single access dish. So we're the only customer on that particular dish on the TDRA satellite that's pointing at our spacecraft, ISS in this case. Mm-hmm. And it's sending, it, it takes that big KU output going up to it and breaks out just mission controls communications 
which contains the command and voice and video signals because we can also send video or other information up to the space station. Wow. And sends it out on either S-band or K-band links to the spacecraft. Wow. So the S-band link has just the commands and voice part of it. The K-band link has two voice channels. Uh, typically does not have command data, although it could under certain circumstances. But mm -hmm. it also has file uplinks, video uplinks. We can send video programming up to the crew. You know, the crew is there for six months at a time. Right. They get off work at the end of the day. They can't close the door, go get in their car and drive home. Right. But just like anybody else, it's nice to relax after work. Yeah. So we have the ability to send up sports programming, news programming, uh, depending on the crew, some of them just want to see video coming up from the control centers, you know, to see the people that are supporting them. Oh, cool. So we have the ability to send programming up to them. They also have a lot of pre-recorded material on board, you know, DVDs, Blu-rays, whatever. They can pick a lot of what they want ahead of time to nice. take up with them. Very cool. So how, I'm guessing this whole thing, right, of sending information on the S-bands and K-bands all the way to the, is that instantaneous all of that is happening like as fast as i can snap my finger or it's, is it happening a it's happening delayed? at the speed of light oh okay but consider light travels 186,000 miles per second mm -hmm. when you're going from here to white sands that's not that far compared no. to the speed of light but yeah. now you go from white sands 22,300 miles up into space ah. now you're getting a little bit of distance there and then 22,300 miles maybe 100 miles mm -hmm. back down to the orbiting spacecraft but of course they're not necessarily directly under Tedris so you know, uh -huh. it could be a lot further than that. Right. Um, so so you just consider it's about a 45,000-mile round trip to get there. Well, now you're talking about a significant fraction of the speed of light, up to a fourth, maybe even a little bit more than a fourth of that. Mm -hmm. So you are starting to talking about um, in the quarter to half a second delay particularly if it's it's round trip we talk to them and they respond mm -hmm. well now you're going 90,000 miles round trip plus the time it takes for the crew to hear what you're saying and respond to it so if you're talking to the crew from the ground and I've only done this once and, and I've seen other people that don't do it often do the same thing you talk they don't respond in what your mind assumes is a normal response time. Mm -hmm. So you think they didn't hear you, and you start talking again, and about that time their response is coming in. Yeah. So it's, it's real easy to talk over each other. So the, the experienced Capcom knows, say what you're going to say, wait, the response will be coming. Mm -hmm. and oh, wow. <laughs> continue that way. That's awesome. I didn't know. I mean, that I would have thought I would have thought it was uh, instantaneous. But when you talk about you know the space station is 250 miles above the Earth, that's not that far compared to 23-ish thousand miles for the yes. for the satellites to go up and down. So uh, some recent news is very soon. I forget how many days. Well, at least by the time this comes out, it probably will have already happened. But at the time of this recording, April 13th, it hasn't happened yet. An ultra high definition. Uh, video April 26th link. I think it's April 26th be. yeah uh, we saw some words on that today coming up making sure our ground controllers that'll be on console are ready to support that but go yeah. ahead so does that does that use the same network yes oh and it can support ultra high definition yeah right right now the the space station can support up to a 25 megabit uplink to the station using k-band mm -hmm. so that's a pretty big pipe 
but yeah. it can support up to 300 megabits downlink. Oh. You know, so that 4K ultra video, high definition video, is going to come through that 300 megabit link down. That same link also supports six standard definition video channels down, two normal high definition channels down, plus a lot of telemetry data, got all the voice that comes down. So it, it, and we're still not using all of it. Yeah, wow. However, the purpose of the space station is science, and science, sending a lot of the science data down does take a lot of bandwidth, and there are plans and work that are going to upgrade that downlink to a 600 megabit capability. Oh, very cool. Yeah, so... I talk about videos for science too, or, or mainly, uh, I guess everything, right? Everything, yeah, like yeah. Any, all data and video and audio, everything. So everything in that that big pipe <laughs> coming down. That's it's got to be a big pipe to support all that stuff. Yes, sir. So let's go. Uh, let's go back twenty three thousand ish miles above the Earth to the Tedris satellites. Yes. So you know we keep we keep saying Tedris, 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 but you know what is that? What is that network? Yeah, the Tedris network was established back in the early part of the shuttle program you know prior to that and i guess you can take a step back to fully understand it you know look back at where we were with mercury Mm -hmm. when the mercury program came there was a need to get data from a spacecraft and to communicate to the spacecraft but nothing existed and nasa established a a manned space flight network putting ground stations around the world they looked at the the orbital track that a spacecraft was going to go on its first few orbits, mm-hmm. launching due east from Kennedy Space Center, or at that time, Cape Canaveral. Mm-hmm. Um, and they placed ground stations to cover a lot of that area in Africa and Australia, uh, Bermuda, across the United States. So you had ground stations in uh, Corpus Christi, for instance, in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you launched, the spacecraft would go over those ground stations, and, and, and if it was a straight overhead pass, it could last as long as eight minutes. And during that time, you could communicate with it. But for Mercury, they really didn't have a good way to get the data back to the control center at Cape Canaveral. Oh, so it they, was just going to the ground stations, right? right not so to they the other. sent people out there, and they had teletype communications between the ground stations and the Mercury Control Center where information could be passed back and forth to the people on the ground or the people back there. Well, they knew as we were moving into Gemini and beyond that that wasn't going to work. Right. Uh, Mission Control in Houston was designed to have a integrated communications network, which was became known as the NASA Communications Network or NASCOM, that would connect all of this together. Hmm. But you still had the limit that the spacecraft had to be over a ground station. And and because of the way they were placed, for two or three orbits, you could have maybe not quite half of the orbit covered by ground stations, maybe less, but you'd have a lot of that where you couldn't communicate with it. Um, And that's how we did Apollo. For Apollo, they also used uh, several tracking ships and aircraft to cover areas where there were no ground stations, but they knew there was going to be critical events happening. Oh. And those were all tied together, and all the data did go back to Mission Control in Houston. So we didn't have to send personnel out to the ground stations for Gemini, Apollo, or beyond. Mm-hmm. All of that came into the control center. 
So there yeah. were no satellites established at this point, right? All, all the information from the moon was going to all these different points on the Earth. That's correct. When we landed on the moon, uh, when the first steps on the moon, I believe that was coming to us through Australia, through the Canberra, or um, oh, which station? It wasn't Canberra, but one of the stations in mm. Australia. Wow. Um, and all being relayed back to us. So, in fact, um, there was a, a big controversy, not sure it's ever been completely settled, about what Neil Armstrong actually said when he landed, when he took his first step on the moon. Was that one small step for man or one small step for a man? man. Right. And he claims he said a man, but mm-hmm. you don't hear it. There's a lot of effort, including someone that had tapes from the Australian ground station in his attic, which... <laughs> probably about 10, 15 years ago, were, were discovered and sent back, and I don't think that still solved the mystery. The, the, the uh, assumption was that it, it came down clearly to Australia, but it was distorted in the transmission back to the control center. Uh, and, and I don't think we've ever really resolved that. So officially, it's one small step for man. Right. But, oh, wow. How about that? Just yeah. a little bit of a... A little bit of a gap there. I remember seeing that uh, just because I was trying to come up with a name for this podcast. And I was like, I was looking through like historical quotes and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I wonder if I can take like a, you know, one small step for man or something like that. And I found like a little like parenthesis over A because I guess there was this controversy around it. And again, I don't know that it was ever resolved. Wow. But we still, again, we still had these gaps in between ground stations that mm-hmm. was a concern. And, and, and moving into shuttle, which was going to be a, a it, it never panned out to be what it was going to be, but a, a reusable spacecraft that could be launched many times in the same year, you know, 30, 40, 50 flights a year for the same orbiter. Oh. <laughs> that would have been nice. Yeah. <laughs> but communications was going to be even more important. And, and that's where they were working to the the space network. The, mm-hmm. the, all the ground stations were part of the ground network. There's also a deep space network. And when we went to the moon, we used the deep space network. That was it's based out of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Okay, over um, in California. Right. So when you go above, too far above low Earth orbit, then ground stations, normal ground stations, and their antennas no longer suffice. And you need the, the very large ground stations, yeah. antennas that the, the Deep Space Network provides. And instead of an antenna so much tracking a spacecraft, it goes across the horizon. The Earth is tracking the spacecraft as it r- rotates around the world when it gets far enough out. Yeah. You know, the antenna is still moving a little bit, but a lot slower for than something in low Earth orbit. Were there uh, were there large gaps then, if, if there were all these handovers? For when you get far enough away, and the moon's far enough away, mm-hmm. uh, there are no gaps. You hand oh. over between Canberra, Australia, to Goldstone, to Madrid, and those are the three major, or the main ground stations in the Deep Space Network. Oh, okay. And we will be using that again when we start flying the Orion missions. All right. So, yeah, we've been, I, I went out to JPL back in October as a familiarization visit to to uh, look at the Goldstone location, to look at their operations at JPL, and to start learning how the ground controllers here in Houston are going to be scheduling those assets in a similar way that we schedule the Space Network assets. Oh, uh, so the Deep Space Network, you gotta, you gotta share too, right? Yeah, and, and the difference there when we when we schedule space network assets which are used by a lot of other users in low earth orbit we have to forecast 
uh, roughly 17 days ahead of time to, to schedule what we think we're going to need for a week's worth of, of passes. So uh, tomorrow we'll be sending in a schedule request for a week that begins uh, two weeks from Monday. Oh, wow. For the JPL, for the Deep Space Network, you put those types of forecast requests in months in advance. Oh. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things we look at, well, you know, for Orion missions, you're almost certainly going to have a launch slip. So mm -hmm. months in advance, we say we're launching this day. We need this support based on our trajectory here, here, and here. And all of a sudden, we slip a day, and all of that's out the window. Wow. Uh, so during an Orion mission then, so I guess, you know, you'll, you'll be communicating with Orion, but then there's going to be periods during that mission, whatever it may be, where you're going to have to trade off and maybe someone else is going to have to take priority for a little bit? It's very possible. Okay. You know, for any mission, you've got periods that are higher priority than other periods. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to maintain constant communications with the spacecraft, and we don't with ISS. Mm -hmm. You know, we frequently have 20, 30-minute gaps um, unless we need to have continuous calm. Same, same thing with, uh, with Orion. You know, when you're getting ready for a maneuver or a, a orbital burn or, or interplanetary burn, then you want to have communications. You want to be able to talk to the crew. You want to be able to look at the data coming from the spacecraft, mm -hmm. particularly after the burn, to make sure that it actually did what you expected it to do. Mm -hmm. So during those periods, we, we will have solid communications for as long a period as we need to. But during quiescent periods, it's not as important. You, you know, you don't have to stay in touch the whole time. And other users, you know, are out there that, you know, you've got a probe around Pluto, you know. Well, they want communications, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, that yeah makes a lot of sense. So I'm thinking, I mean, right now I've, I was just reading about uh, Cassini. Cassini's going to start making passes on the inner rings and then... Uh, you know, make a controlled entry into Saturn to destroy. A suicide dive. Yeah, a yes. suicide dive, kind of so it doesn't, you know, affect uh, uh, Enceladus or, or Titan or anything like that and, and can cause contamination. So, you know, <laughs> right. not to be not to be mean, but that's one less spacecraft we have to worry about on the Deep Space Network. <laughs> well, and, and you're, you're right. Uh, you know, it's really not a huge issue sharing times. Right. Again, for, for most of the planetary spacecraft that are out there it's not that difficult for them to plan months ahead of time mm -hmm. you know they know when we're going to do this burn in, in a year and a half you know uh, so they can plan when they need that communications yeah well, um, you guys must be really good at scheduling if like you're planning that far in advance well i gotta gotta admit i admire the people at jpl because mm -hmm. the the detail they go to yeah and particularly if they're doing a a course correction, you know, one of their sling around a planet and get a gravity assist to go somewhere else, you know, just the planning for when to make that happen is incredible. But then you also want to have that communications to verify that it's doing what you're doing. Exactly. And of course, when they do that, you know, when we're talking to the space station, we talked about the delay, it's, it's near instantaneous within a, a quarter to half a second round trip. Mm -hmm. When you're talking something out at Pluto, it's hours. Right. You know, That's far. Literally hours. You know, it, it was sort of funny watching some of the Mars landings, and you would see the people at JPL in their control center, and, and they would get 
data back that you know it's reentry has started and they're up jumping and cheering you know and i'm thinking we don't do that sit down you know behave yourselves but there's nothing they can do at that point that reentry started 20 30 minutes ago right yeah you know, at that point it's like yeah. a, it's like a replay right shoots her out yay jump up and down you know and it's come on you know he's like, but you know for us right. when the shuttle landed shoots her out you know, we still had work to do, and this was virtually real time. So it's, you know, you couldn't jump up and down and shout and whatever. But for yeah. JPL, yeah, that's okay. Yeah. You know, they're, they're watching events that happened. You know, it, it may have already crashed and burned by that time, but they don't know it yet. Yeah. And fortunately, in most cases, it didn't, and it lands very nicely, and the yes. rovers are wandering Mars doing great things years beyond what they were planned to do. Oh, yeah. So you got to admire those people out there. Oh, yeah. Curiosity. How, how, however, if you go to their control center, right in the center of it, they got this little glass, plexiglass plate with an emblem down there that declares they are the center of the universe. I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> a little egotistical, but yeah, okay. A <laughs> nah, it's a great place. Yeah, oh, yeah. So they were using the Deep Space Network then to, to yes, watch that, that. they yeah. almost exclusively use the Deep Space Network. Okay, but us, I would say, we use, for the International Space Station, the TDRS satellites. Right, the Space Network. Okay, cool. Uh, we, we use the, the GN, the Ground Network for Space Station, very rarely we use wallops and white sands and armstrong mm -hmm. their vhf radio capability as an emergency voice capability for the space station okay um, we don't we i don't think we've ever had to actually use it in the emergency situation but we schedule passes several times a year to provide proficiency training for the ground stations and also for the crew and operating the radios to talk to us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we do that, but that's the only time we actually use ground stations. Oh, okay. Normal communications, it's all space network, TDRS. So the TDRS satellites, um, you said, you know, some of them are pointing towards the spacecraft and some of them are pointing out towards other things. And this is a, as this is a communication network that you have to share. Um, <laughs> But you know that that's twenty three thousand miles up. There's there's several satellites around the Earth, right? Yes, there are. So how many are there, and then how do they talk to each other? We're on our, I say our. The the space network is, I believe, on their twelfth satellite on orbit. Oh. Uh, the first one was launched on STS six back in the, the nineteen eighty three time frame, I believe. Oh. Um, it had problems getting up there. The the um, booster that was supposed to take it into geosynchronous orbit malfunctioned. Oh, on it, the satellite or uh, on uh, the... Yeah, for the, the TDRS satellite, it had a, a inertial upper stage booster. Oh, okay. That was attached to it that was going to burn, take it into geosync, then the booster would drop off. Okay. And the burn didn't happen correctly. It ended up in a very elliptical orbit uh, thousands of miles or below where it should have been oh so i guess it's unreliable at that well, point what right? they had to do on that one because each satellite has a, a certain amount of fuel on board propellant to basically keep it in its orbit or to make slight adjustments if they need to drift it to a different part of the earth mm -hmm. uh, they had to use a fair amount of that propellant to gently boost it up into the right orbit oh. so that that reduced its overall lifetime it's no longer operational but it did provide great support for many years right um, so that first one covered the atlantic ocean region 
Oh, okay. So twenty three thousand miles <coughs> up. That's that you you get that sliver, and I yeah. guess you know they used all the propellant to to get it up to, to there. Get it so up you, there, you get almost it, a third of the Earth. A third of the Earth. Okay, almost. that's decent. Yeah. So and and we use that beginning with STS eight, mm-hmm. um, which but you know up before that point the shuttles were using ground stations just like everything else before every other spacecraft before that. So you know we had the limitations. You first orbit you had a good amount of communications first three orbits and then you drifted off range of most of the ground station um, you might end up with an eight minute pass every orbit or every 90 minutes wow you know so you know from a control center standpoint you know that that gives you a chance for a bit of a break but we don't want that long of a break yeah. we want to stay in touch with them that's right eight minutes is a long break yeah. but you, you know so so when uh, the first tedris got up we then covered a fair part of the orbit of, of half of the earth mm-hmm. you know so starting somewhere over the pacific to right before the indian ocean you could cover communications okay now we later put up the next tedris and unfortunately it was destroyed in the challenger accident so uh-huh. the second tedris um, never made it into space mm-hmm. uh, sts 26 the return to flight put up the third tedris which became the second operational one and that closed most of the orbit you had a a sort of a banana shaped sliver over the indian ocean that became known as the zone of exclusion where you didn't have communications and and the biggest problem there is you've got to you know picture the tedra satellites they have to communicate through a ground station Mm -hmm. and that ground station is in white sands new mexico Mm -hmm. Um, so they have to be able to see white sands so you, you put one satellite as far east of White Sands as you can, but still maintain good uh, connection with the ground. You put the other one as far west as you can, covering the Pacific Ocean region, but still being able to see the ground. And then the other one on the other side that's yeah. missing. And, well, and it, it, at that point, that's all we had. Oh, oh. So, but, but we did, I think there were seven Tedris that went up on shuttles before they started going through the expendables to put them up. Oh, okay. Um, but, you know, we eventually got enough to have spares on orbit and, and solidly cover the east and west side. Mm-hmm. Um, in the late 90s, there was a scientific satellite uh, may have been TRM, but I, I forget specifically, that had a spacecraft emergency. Hmm. And as part of the recovery of that, they really needed to have continuous coverage around the Earth. So that zone of exclusion was a big hindrance to them. Right. And they took one of the spare satellites, drifted it over the Indian Ocean. They brought up a ground station in um, Canberra, Australia, one of the old deep space network stations. I think we still use it for deep space, but they put a capability there to talk to Tedris mm-hmm. and then sent back that sent that back to White Sands. So we we were able to close the ZOE. Nice. Um, that happened when? I th- I want to say 99, but okay. it was in the late, it may, it may have been, maybe it was the early 90s, somewhere in the 1990s. Okay. Because um, when I started as a GC, it was already there, and that was 97, so it was before 97. Okay. Um, they, you know, we need this, and so they built a permanent ground station on Guam, which is known as the Guam Remote Ground Terminal, GRGT. Okay. And so we have that today. There's, you know, for a space station, we have a satellite we call 275, It's which is the longitude that, it, that it's at. Mm-hmm. 
and <clears throat> we use it to cover that gap. For a long time, there were limitations to that. For instance, the ground link between Guam and White Sands didn't have enough bandwidth to cover video. So if we were on the 275 satellite, we could cover the, the telemetry and command and voice gap, but you couldn't get video up or down through that. Wow. Uh, last year, I believe it was, they upgraded the link between there and, and now we can have full video service, full bandwidth. So regardless of where we are in the world, we can have a full communications with the International Space Station. Nice. Uh, there's five satellites that we that the ISS uses. There's two over the eastern region, what we call Tedris East and Tedris Spare. There's two over the western region, Tedris West and a Tedris that we just referred to it by longitude, 171. Okay. And then we have 275 over the Indian Ocean. Okay. So we'll use three of them, you know, one east, one west, and one in the Indian Ocean to mm -hmm. cover the entire uh, orbit if we need to for, for EVAs, you know, spacewalks, for robotics operations where we need to have a good link to the ground, we'll declare a Tedris critical period. And for a period of several hours to maybe a day or more, we will schedule constantly during that period. Oh. If we don't have critical activities going on, then we'll schedule around important events. If there's a, a private conference with the crew, we want to make sure that we have um, good S-band coverage, at, uh, mm -hmm. preferably good K-band coverage. If it's a private family conference where we're setting up a video teleconference capability, then we want to have that K-band coverage. So the, the uh, ops plan control controllers in there that look at what's being planned, one of their back rooms generates the uh, Tedris coverage request that says these are the times we really need to have that coverage, which is given to another position called pointing, which then uses tools that they have that, that takes in the attitude timeline of the space station, which is important because you need to know how the station is pointing at any particular side to know whether it has a, a good view of a TDRA satellite or whether there's blockage to its some of its antennas. Okay and then they design which satellites we use at any given time and that all goes into a forecast request that's provided to my position, the mm -hmm. ground controllers, and then we work with the people out of White Sands to physically schedule those satellites for the time required. I see. So, so the ops planner, that's, a, that's another flight controller position, right? Your ground yes. control ops planner, they're the ones planning out and they, they determine those right. times. They, and then they take the inputs from the, the increment lead team that says this is what the crew needs to do at any given time and mm -hmm. they pull all the science inputs and the, the crew inputs and, and everything into one big package and have to come up with a plan of what coverage is needed to support that. Mm -hmm. And then it goes, like I said, to pointing who determines what works and what doesn't work. You know, we have to be in view of the satellite, but we also have to have good antenna coverage for, for S-band S-band is a lower data rate, and it doesn't require as precise pointing. Okay. Um, so the coverage for S-band is a lot better generally. Right. K-band is a very much higher rate signal that has a dish antenna on the space station that has to be precisely pointed at the dish antenna of the TDRS. Ah. 
And depending on the attitude of the space station, there's plenty of times where the solar arrays, trusses, or other structure of the space station block that. And those are predictable, right? So those even are, though you schedule, you prioritize the schedule for, say, a uh, spacewalk, yes. and you prioritize the schedule, you're still going to have little periods of, of interruptions, and it's because of that? Exactly. And, okay. and because of that, um, you know, you have two satellites over the east, two over the west. Sometimes you've got bad KU coverage over one of those satellites, mm-hmm. but just because of a slight difference, maybe three to four degrees difference on orbit, but that's at 22,000 miles up, so that's quite an angular distance. Uh, you may have better coverage over the others from the other satellites. So pointing will look at their tools and they'll say, well, normally we would use TDRS East to cover this part of the world, but for this particular request or requirement, TDRS Spare is gonna provide better coverage. Or normally we would take TDRS East until we run out of view of it, and then if we needed 275 hand up to it, well, maybe that last portion of the pass is bad coverage, but 275 is good. Mm. And since we can do video through that now, then we can move on. You know, they'll say, let's schedule this for that period of time. Right. So there's a lot There's a lot going on behind the scenes that creates that clean coverage yes. that, you know, we're just not aware of. There's handovers and That's all, that's and all, all the forecast stuff. period. That, that's saying nothing ever changes, but it does change frequently. So in the real-time period... You know, we, we, once the forecast is scheduled and set, you enter the real-time period about a week before you actually start using that, mm-hmm. which means pointing now comes and says, well, the trajectory's changed a little bit since we generated that forecast request, mm-hmm. or the spacewalk's been added here, or something else due to s- some reason that wasn't predicted ahead of time, and now we need different coverage. So that then comes into a, a system where they generate a what we call a flight note that says change up our coverage based on this and the flight director will have to approve that and then the GC, my position, will go work with White Sands and say we, we need to give up this time but get this time and White Sands may say well another user has that time so what's the priority? Uh-huh. You know, Can we bump the other user? or? You know, is it a TDRS critical period that's driving that, in which case we probably can bump the other user because human spaceflight has higher priority in general than scientific spacecraft. I see. But not always. You know, right. It, it, there's but in, of, in times of like a spacewalk or something, then I guess that it would take, it would kind of trump it? Yes, okay. it, it, would, it would trump it. Sometimes we have to get the management at Goddard involved to go arbitrate or... or you know, help us with our request. Oh, you guys got to fight over the. Uh, there are times, <laughs> we do, and we we can never know who the other users are. Oh. You know, that's that's their business, not our business. They right. don't know who we are when we're asking for their time. I see. So the terminology is a higher priority user needs this. In general, who are some of the other folks that use the Teeter satellites? Uh, most of them are like Hubble Space uh, Space oh, Telescope. Um, okay. TRM was a good example. Okay. Uh, d- different satellites doing Earth sciences. Okay. But Department of Defense also uses them. Oh. And sometimes when you get a higher priority user, they really are a higher priority user, yeah. and, and we we can tell from the the way things are being told to us that we don't need to go fight this battle we're not going to win <laughs> you know? but if we have a spacecraft emergency that bumps us up to 
the highest priority user. Totally makes sense. So, so uh, we're running out of time just a little bit, but I did want to talk about one more thing before I let you go, and sure. that's um, I know you know we're talking about how the International Space Station has near instantaneous. You're saying quarter of a second ish round trip yep. uh, communication. I know if we go to Mars, uh, when we go to Mars, um, that's going to take a long time. We're talking about way longer than yes. just a fraction of a second. Are you? Are we training for, for what that's going to look like? Yes, we are. Um, that, that certainly is a consideration. Uh, we actually began several years ago with an experiment. I think it's been a while since we've done it. But we put delay equipment into one of our space-to-ground channels up to the crew. Oh. And we only one of them though. Okay. <laughs> and so and it was a planned experiment with the crew where we would talk from the ground and it would sit on the ground for ten minutes before being sent up. Okay. Yeah. And right. the crew would respond and it would sit on the ground for ten minutes before being put into our voice system. So you'd have a twenty minute round time delay. Mm -hmm. And and they would practice with simple tasks. Mm -hmm. You know, and and that's Depending on circumstances, you know, a, a 10 minute or longer one way trip time is very possible as you head toward Mars. Right. Uh, the other day, when I was at that mission control film, Dr. Kraft was asked, you know, what the next step for NASA should be. And he says, I don't know why we're going to Mars. Oh. He said, you go to the moon and exploit its resources, you're three second voice time away. Right. <laughs> you go to Mars, you're 40 minutes away. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, it, and there's a lot of other reasons on that, but sure. but but that's that's a good example. So so we're thinking along the lines of well, right now we talk to the crew, and we say they're they're having a problem, and someone on the ground says, well, this procedure says they should go do this, so we tell them that, and then they go do that, and then it doesn't work, and they say, well, that didn't work. What should I do next? And well, go try this. Well, you can't do that real time when you're a 20 or 40 minute round trip voice path away. Yeah, you have a problem, you're not getting an answer for 40 minutes. So you've got to frame your questions and your directions a lot differently. Right. You know, we we want you to try this step. If that doesn't work, go to this part of the procedure. If that doesn't work, go to that part of the procedure. You've got to understand and think of what the problems could be ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And you want to package that conversation one way to include as much information and then as much um, alternate things that they can do as possible. And they get that and they try it and they'll have to package their response back in a similar way that says we did this and we did that and we did this and maybe this worked or maybe we got this indication, not that indication. Mm -hmm. you know. And, and so instead of a quick two-second voice uplink, you may have a two- or three-minute voice uplink to them to give them a lot of options they can go work and then respond back. So those types of things are part of the planning process, and, yeah. and how do we handle this obstacle? We can't beat physics, you know? <laughs> so how do we work with it to the best of our advantage? Right. So the main thing, really, you discovered is that talking on Mars is going to be really, really annoying. It, so. it will be. <laughs> but patient. you're coming up with all the right techniques but, to, to but make But sure we it's... go back to the JPL session, you know. Yeah. yeah when, when they can they send back something and say it worked, you can jump up and down and cheer because yeah. 
you know, you're not affecting anything real time. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Okay. Well, I think that's, uh, that's about all the time we have. Bill, thank you so much for coming and, that's uh, my pleasure. and talking about space communication. Learned a lot. I'm sure there's a much more to this topic. If there's anything uh, we missed, uh, stay tuned to after the outro music here, and we'll tell you about how to talk to us to see if there's, uh, if you have any suggestions for questions or topics that we can answer. So, uh, Bill, thanks again for coming on the show, and uh, hopefully we'll see you next time. You bet. Y'all have a great day. Thanks. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talk space communication with Bill Foster. And you can learn way more about it if you go on the internet. Great place to go for more information for pretty much everything, including learning about space communication. So I have a website here called deepspace.jpl.nasa.gov, or you can just go and search for DSN Now. That's Deep Space Network Now. It's a really cool website where if you go, you can actually see which satellites are being used for which things in the deep space network. That was one of the main things that Bill and I talked about today. Uh, if you want to know more about the International Space Station, where we are sending a lot of our space communication now on a day-to-day basis, uh, you can go to nasa.gov ISS and learn everything about uh, all the latest updates about the International Space Station. We have blogs and articles and scientific updates on a day-to-day basis, so make sure you go there. We're also very active on social media for the International Space Station on Facebook. It's the title of the page itself is called International Space Station. On Twitter, it's at space underscore station. And on Instagram, it's at ISS. If you go to any one of those, you can find some great information, but you can also use the hashtag AskNASA on any one of those platforms. And we'll take a look and um, uh, you can submit an idea for a podcast topic, or maybe you just have a question and we'll try to address it later on a podcast. Just make sure to uh, mention Houston, we have a podcast in that hashtag. Uh, This podcast was recorded on April 13th, 2017. Thanks to John Stoll, Alex Perryman, and Matt McKenzie for helping with the script. And thanks again for Bill Foster for coming on the show. We'll see you next time.